Well, every day, whether we recognize it or not, we're living under some sort of authority. At work, you're under the authority of your boss. And at home, kids are under the authority of their parents. And while driving, we're under the authority of traffic laws that somebody else set up for us. And everywhere we go, we're submitting ourselves to some kind of authority um, who's over us um, and who has put things in place um, for to determine how we act. And so, for instance, we all uh, pay for things instead of stealing things. And we don't park in the handicapped spot. When we wait in line, we don't budge. And when we pay, we, we pay our taxes and we sit at our assigned desk at school or where the teacher tells us to sit. And so everywhere we go, we're putting ourselves under some sort of authority. And if we don't submit to the authorities over us, we suffer the consequences. Because people who continually refuse to submit to authorities lose their place um, where that authority um, is kind of governing over. In school, you'll get detention or you'll get expelled from school, or you get fired from your job, or you go to jail away from society. When we don't submit to the authorities, we get taken out of the place um, over which they have authority. And sometimes our acceptance of someone's authority over us is based on their expertise on a certain topic. You might hear uh, in the news or someone, oh, so-and-so is a, an authority on anthropology, or so-and-so is an authority on American politics. And it's like, okay, now I can listen to this person because um, they're saying, um, something that's trustworthy and we listen to people who are an authority on a topic and so an airplane pilot um, is an authority on flying an airplane and so when I get in an airplane I'm not really questioning what the pilot tells me to do because they're the authority on how we're going to get this plane from point A to point B um, with safe travel and so we go there and we submit to their authority and when you go to a doctor or a dentist they're authorities on your health and so you listen to them so you can keep your teeth uh, and their authorities on that topic, and so we submit to the things that they say. And today, as we continue our series in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, um, we're we're still learning about beginnings. Genesis is a book of beginnings, and in these opening chapters, Genesis one, Genesis two, we learn about the beginning of humanity's home. Last week, we saw God creates uh, this world and everything that exists; that He's setting up this home. Um, and now this week, last week we saw that, this week we're seeing, okay, what's like, let's go into this home and see what home life is like. Last week we set up the home, and now we're going to get this up-close view of what life is like. Um, but as we're going to learn next week, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are just um, foundational for understanding the whole Bible. Next week we're going to learn how uh, humanity, the home between humanity and God becomes the first broken home in all of history. And Genesis is all about how God is putting a plan into motion to bring us home. That's why we named the series Beginning the Journey Home. And as we talked about last week and this week as well, um, the picture that we're given of home in Genesis is that of a garden. Gar the garden was home. The garden was where God's presence was. That's where he was taking care of Adam um, and then of Eve. And so that's why we have our decorations like this. Let it be a reminder of like, okay, when I'm thinking in the Bible, garden, that's home. And you'll see, you can trace the Bible and see garden as a theme that goes throughout all the whole, the whole Bible. And I'll talk about that um, a little later. And as we saw last week, uh, God created this home. And now today we get to see uh, what is life like? What's the home life like um, between man and God? If we go into their house, what's it like? What are the dynamics like? Um, and we see in Genesis 2 a picture of everything as it should be. We see God relating uh, to humanity like it, as God intended it to be. And we see man and woman relating to each other as God 
intended it to be. And what we see is a picture of the good life. And uh, this would be especially relevant to the ancient Hebrews because they got brought, this is who it's written to, they got brought out of slavery in Egypt and are about to enter this land called Canaan. Um, and there's you know, all kinds of different visions of what the good life is. And God says, I want you to worship me alone. Every, there's all these other gods, all these other religions. Fully devote yourself to me. I'm the only creator. And so he promises, I'm going to give you this land, um, and you must obey me if you want to keep this land. He says, if you obey me, you'll experience the good life. Things will go well for you in this land I'm giving you. You'll be able to enjoy your, my presence with you. You'll be able to enjoy healthy relationships with each other. And you'll be this light that shines to the world, showing all the other nations what your God is like. If you obey me, you'll experience this good life. And God was returning to, them, to this picture of the good life that we see in Genesis 2. He was calling them back to the home life for which he had made them. And so this leads us to the big question this passage answers, which is, how can we experience the good life? How can we experience the good life? That's the question this passage answers. And as we said last week, Genesis is a book that wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. And so just like ancient Israel, they needed to see Genesis 2 as like, yeah, that's the good life. That's what we, why we want to obey God. That's what we're returning to. At the same time, for us, we need this, the same call to come back home, to come back home to God and experience the good life for which he made it, us. And so we're going to go over this passage in two scenes. Um, in scene one, um, the Lord God provides a home for man. And in scene two, the Lord God provides a helper for man. And so let's begin with Genesis uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 17, where God provides a home for man. And verse 4 in this chapter is really uh, sort of a title for chapters 2, 3, and 4. It says this, verse 4 says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And after the initial creation in Genesis 1, there, there's 11 headings um, all throughout the book of Genesis, and they all start in this way. These are the generations of blank. And each of them is this title of telling us what the focus of the next stories are going to be. It's kind of like saying, like, this is the story of blank. This is what became of blank. And in this case, it's telling us, um, this is what becomes of the heavens and earth. This is the story of the heavens and earth. So what we're about to hear is, okay, God created the heavens and earth, but now what becomes of, comes of them in chapters 2 through 4? And last week in Genesis 1, we saw this zoomed out, like, panoramic view of everything God created. It was like, hey, God is the ultimate creator. He's all-powerful. And so we're zoomed out, panoramic view of all creation. Um, now this week, in Genesis 2, um, Moses, who's the author of this, he kind of like rewinds and then slows down, and he gives us this zoomed-in, close-up view of God's creation of man and woman. Last week was like the zoomed-out creation of man and woman and the world, and now it's the zoomed-in view of that. And we see one of the reasons we can tell that it's this kind of zoomed-in, close-up view is by the word, uh, the name used for God throughout this chapter. So look at um, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. And so you'll notice 
even in verse 4 and several times in those verses, the name used for God is the Lord God. And all in chapter 1, it was just God. And now it's the Lord God. And Lord is, with all caps like that, is how our English Bibles, or at least most of them, translate God's personal name, which in the original language, Hebrew, was pronounced Yahweh. Maybe you've heard that before. Jehovah's Witnesses kind of based their name. Jehovah was kind of like this confusion with the J and the Y, but it's Yahweh. That's how you pronounce his name. And it's translated Lord because the ancient Israelites, every time they saw that personal name, they're like, this is just too holy and special for us to, to actually read this. And so they would say Lord instead of saying Yahweh. Their, their word for Lord, um, that's what they would say instead of saying Yahweh. Um, but using Yahweh or Lord here expresses that uh, using his personal name is expressing, well, God, yes, he is transcendent. He's all-powerful. He's the one who created everything, and so he's the ruler of everything. And yet at the same time, he's very personal, and he's very close, and he wants to interact uh, with his creation in a personal um, and unique way. And so it's very appropriate that his personal name is used in this chapter because all throughout chapter 2, we see God's fatherly care for humanity. And so we might ask, well, how does he show fatherly care for humanity? Well, first, the Lord God provides life. The Lord God provides life. Whereas in Genesis 1, we're not told the process by which God created man. Here we learn that God, like a potter, formed man out of the dust of the earth, and then he breathed life into him. And if you think about, like, okay, what's the sign that somebody's alive? We always ask, why are they breathing? We check if they're breathing. And God's the one who gives life. He breathes life into the very first man. Breathing is a sign of life, and God is the one who gives it. So first, the Lord God provides life, and second, the Lord God provides a home. The Lord God provides a home. Verse 8 says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The word Eden, you may wonder what that means. The word Eden means delight. In God's delightful creation, in Eden, he plants this garden for the man to live in. And so as a potter, God formed the man. As a gardener, he plants a home for him. And remember, this is the, the picture of home in the Bible, the garden. That's where man and God live together. The third, the Lord God provides food. The Lord God provides food. That's how he shows his fatherly care. Verse 9 says this. Now to the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And this is a, a home, plants this garden, and this is a home ripe with goodness. It just has this food available, trees delightful to the eyes and food good to eat. Fourth, the Lord God provides his life-giving presence. How does God show his fatherly care for humanity? The Lord God provides his life-giving presence. <coughs> the second half of verse 9 says this, The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And these two trees are, I don't know, maybe when we look at these, perhaps are one of the parts where we're like, what? what's up with these trees in the garden? Uh, but they're packed with symbolism and meaning. And we'll come back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil later. Um, we'll talk about it more in verse 17. But the tree of life represents um, the life that God gives. God gave the man the breath of life. It's only in connection to God that that life 
is going to continue. He's the giver of life, and if you unplug from him, um, you, you no longer have power. You no longer have life. In John 17, 3, Jesus says this. He says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus defines right there, eternal life. What's eternal life? It's knowing God. And often we think of eternal life, we think, oh, that means eternity in heaven. Someday I'm going to die, I'm going to go into eternal life. Um, but Jesus says that eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And eternal life is found in a relationship with God. It's found in connection to God. And so a lot of times when we were in college ministry, we'd read this to students. We'd say, so what does that mean? When do you get eternal life? And usually we say, oh, when you die. But according to this, when do you get eternal life? When you enter a relationship with God, when you start knowing God. That's when you're reconnected to your creator who gives life. And apart from him, we have no life in any respect, spiritually or physically and any other way. And in the garden, God is present with man. In that presence, he, man finds life. And then verses 10 through 14 provide some details about Eden and the garden that may seem kind of out of place at first. Like, why do we care about these rivers? Why do we care about Cush and Bedellium and Onyx Stone? Like, this is just, all of a sudden, it's like, what is going on here? Why are you telling us about all this? Uh, why should we care? Well, one thing they show us is that this garden was an actual place. They're describing where it was. Um, four rivers are mentioned. We don't know where the Pishon and the Gihon are, but the Tigris and the Euphrates still exist today, major rivers over in that part of the world. At the same time, uh, more importantly, we need to recognize when biblical authors give details, it's always for a purpose. Because if you read like novels today or stories today, like what do they do? They spend, you know, I really like J.R.R. Tolkien from Lord of the Rings. He just takes forever to describe what somebody looks like. It takes forever to describe where they're at, the setting they're in. Um, and then you read like uh, the Hunger Games and the whole, my Katie read it, and the whole thing is uh, in the inner thoughts um, of Katniss Everdeen, at least the first one, thinking, what is she thinking? What is she feeling? And so when we read books, we're like, what are they thinking? What are they feeling? What do they look like? What does everything around them look like? In the Bible, uh, they do not do that. Um, they don't load us with detail. And the ancient Hebrew writers, um, when they give details, you should pay attention because it's always for a purpose. It's like, oh, that's kind of weird. Why did they say that? And you'll notice like later on, it'll mean something in the story. And in this case, the two materials mentioned, gold and onyx stone, both of these are materials that are later used when Israel constructs uh, both the tabernacle, which was a tent that God dwelt in while they were on the move. It was like his mobile temple. And then later on, um, the whole the temple that was in Jerusalem. And when God chose Israel to be his people, he gave them instructions for how he was going to dwell among them. And notice, what's God doing here? He's dwelling with uh, the first humans. And then that gets messed up, as we'll see next week. But then God chooses Israel, and he says, I'm going to dwell among you. And how does he say he's going to do that? Well, uh, you're going to make certain items um, out of gold. You're going to make it out of onyx. Um, and so the, and then in addition, the decorations in the tabernacle and the temple all had garden imagery. If you, if you read, uh, they had this big curtain separating um, God, uh, God, where God's presence dwelt from where the priests were. And it's like God, 
trees and stuff on it. It's got these angels on it, which will come into play later in Genesis 3. Next week we'll see. And then there's like this, this lamp that kind of looks like a tree, tree of life. You know, so there's all these things that are pointing back to the garden. This is where my presence originally was with humanity. And now I'm reestablishing that home, that presence with you. And so all these materials, um, the author's preparing us for a story that's later when God's going to um, create, tell them, create this tabernacle out of gold, create this tabernacle out of onyx stone, um, and this temple, and use these materials. So it looks forward to that. So continuing with the Lord, God's fatherly care, the fifth action he does is provides man with work. The Lord God provides man with work. Verse 15 says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, and keep it. You could say God as Father provides a man with chores. This is his house. He's like, all right, you're going to have some chores if you're going to live in this house. But I thought that might have two negative connotations for some of us. Like, chores, blah. Uh, but God doesn't just plop them in there to hang out, but he gives them a job to do. There's some responsibilities. And he said, this echoes back to day six of creation um, that we saw last week, where humans are given the role of subduing the earth. Our job is to cultivate the potential of God's good creation. So God creates this garden, puts the man in, and now work it and keep it. And this shows us that work is a part of God's good creation. Sometimes we think, oh man, work is a curse. And we imagine, well, when we live in the new heavens and new earth, when we go off to eternal life, we won't have to work anymore. We can just kind of sit around. It's like eternal vacation or something on the beach. Uh, but um, for mo most people, our, our view, what we struggle with, it's like, oh, what's heaven going to be? Oh, it's like this eternal worship service sitting up in the clouds, um, just singing to God. And it's like, okay. And if we're, some of us, if we're honest, we're like, that sounds a, a little boring. Like, it's kind of nice to come do this for an hour and 15 minutes, and I can focus for that long. But this is, like, not my real life. This is what, is what I do all week. I do with kids, deal with kids, and I garden, I take care of my home, and I, I work, and I produce technology, and I do this and that, um, and that's more of the way how the Bible talks uh, about our future. God says, this whole earth is going to be created new, we're not going to be sitting on clouds, we're going to be here, um, but once again, God's going to be dwelling here, we're going to be in God's presence, and God says we're going to be given responsibilities, and we're going to be given things um, to do. And so we shouldn't imagine, like, sitting in a cloud just having an eternal um, worship gathering. This um, time, there's, a, there's going to be worship, of course. You see that in the book of Revelation, people uh, sitting around the throne praising God, but that's not going to be all we do. And, but here again, we, the words work and keep look forward to Israel's tabernacle and temple because the priests who took care of the tabernacle and temple where God's presence dwelt were told, you need to work it and keep it. The word for work could also be translated serve. Like you need to serve the, in this place. You're serving me, um, priests, and you're supposed to keep this temple guarded, keep it holy, keep bad things out of it. And so the author is showing us again, like what's happening here? This is talking about God's temple and his presence coming to dwell with humanity. Our home is supposed to be in God's presence. We're to live in his temple, serving him, enjoying all that he's provided for us. And lastly, God's fatherly care is shows up in how the Lord God provides instruction. The Lord God provides instruction. Verse 16 says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil 
You shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, there's been a lot of debate on what it means, but most people, almost all people today agree that it represents a choice. It's a choice uh, to either decide good and evil for ourselves or to submit to God's authority as the one who decides what is good and evil. It's the choice to say, God, I'm going to let you define what is good and evil. I'm going to submit to your <coughs> authority. And I'm not going to say, you know, because if you think about um, how we would maybe leave the authority that people put over us, we would say, like, they're telling me to do this. They're telling me this is good. They're telling me this is bad. And I'm going to do the bad thing anyway, and I'm not going to do the good thing. That means I've decided what is good and evil for myself um, instead of submitting to somebody else's authority who's defining good and evil for me. This is what you should do. This is what you should not do. And if I do the opposite, that means I'm saying, no, I'm define it for myself. Because if we look back, who is the one that knows what good and evil is in chapter 1? Well, God is. We've heard over and over, God sees his creation, and he declares that it's good. And seeing implies evaluation. God is the one who evaluates and declares good. And if man eats from a tree from which God has forbidden him to eat, it means that man is evaluating what is good and evil for himself, and disregarding what God has said is off-limits. And there are consequences to that. God is a king. That means we need to submit to him as king if we want to remain in his kingdom, in his presence. And we'll learn later, like uh, Adam and Eve, they eat from this tree that God says not to, and they don't die physically right away. But what happens? They're sent out of the garden. They're sent out of God's presence. And so death is the same as exile or being um, alienated and estranged. The consequence of saying, you know what, God, I'm going to decide good and evil for myself and reject your authority is you've now alienated yourself and separated yourself from God. In these verses, we see the Lord God provides a home for man. It's a home filled with delight and goodness. It's a home filled with God's personal presence. It's a home where God gives life to those who live there. It's a home filled with God-given responsibility. It's a home where man is expected to trust and obey his creator. And if you're a parent, um, you could write all those things down, and they'd be really good guidelines for how to lead in your home, all these things that God um, does in the home he creates for us. And now let's look at verses 18 through 24. Um, God, in these verses, the Lord God provides a home for man. In 18 through 24, the Lord God provides a helper for man. And when God created all that exists in chapter 1, he declared that it was good six times. And after he created man in his image, he looked at that and he declared it very good. And chapter 1 had six goods and one very good. And in chapter 2, we hear our first not good. Look at verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. And God doesn't immediately jump to creating a helper fit for man. He builds some suspense and, and longing for it first. Verse 19 uh, says this, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there is not found a helper fit for him. God lets the man do his job for a while. His job is to subdue creation 
and have dominion over it. That's what he said back in chapter 1. And in the ancient world, and in our world today, one of the ways that we show our authority or our dominion over something or someone is by naming that thing. People who find new stars, name it. People who found the original uh, elements in the periodic table, name those things. And when you were born, you were named. And when you had kids, you named them. That shows who has authority over this thing, who has dominion over this thing. And it shows uh, the man, who we learn is named Adam in verse 20, names the animals and names the birds. And as he does so, and he goes through this, he finds, well, there's not a helper fit for me. In this parade of wildlife, he doesn't look at any of them and say, that one's like me. And then verse 21 says this, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God creates a helper fit, especially for Adam. And finally he exclaims, this one is like me. This one is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And there's kind of a hint of marriage commitment here. Because in other passages where people say, you're bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, there's a, there's a pledge of loyalty involved. Like 2 Samuel 5.1, when King David speaks to a group of, of people from the northern tribes of Israel, um, they pledge loyalty to him by saying, we are your bone and flesh. The implication is oneness. No matter what, I'm committed to you. I'm with you in this. Which is why verse 24 then says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. Based on Adam's one flesh commitment to the woman God makes for him, we get the model for marriage. And in that culture, honor to parents was the next most important thing after honoring God. And so to say that a man should leave or forsake his mother and father and hold fast to his wife is a, a big statement. And for us today, that's kind of like an assumed, like, well, of course I move out of my parents' house um, and I go in with my wife. But for that day, this was like kind of a radical thing to say. Um, but this commitment um, is based on Adam's original declaration concern, concerning the woman God had made for him. They should become one flesh. They should be totally united. They're, in their unity, um, Adam and the, uh, the woman's unity is shown in that it says they're both naked and not ashamed. There's this total openness. There's no barriers, no boundaries stood between them. There are no walls of shame, and there was no shaming that separated them. There's just no shame. And we'll see uh, in chapter 3 how this gets undone. So that instead of being having no shame, now they hide themselves one another. And so you, you think about that. The God's intent for marriage is that there'd be nothing hidden from the other person. There'd be no shame. Everything, you know, just be an open book to the other person. God made woman as a helper fit for man. And this doesn't mean that uh, women are less, like a lesser creation because they're the helper. And in fact, scripture often called God Israel's helper, the same exact word. It doesn't mean that man is lesser because he needs a helper, even if it's proven over and over and again that I need a helper because Katie helps me in so many ways. Um, but the woman is made for Adam as a complementary partner. Genesis 1.27 told us both man and woman are made in the image of God. They're equal, um, but complementary. They complement one another. 
And Jesus actually uses these verses to defend his view of marriage against a culture where men would quickly divorce their wives for petty reasons, which uh, is something we need to hear today in our culture as well. In Matthew 19, 6, Jesus quotes this verse and says, uh, he quotes the one we just said that a man shall leave his father and mother, um, and he says, uh, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Even though the narrator is the one speaking in verse 24, and God isn't, Jesus quotes this verse by saying, God said. And so Jesus views the words of Genesis as the very words of God. And 1,500 years after this verse was written, he uses it to explain marriage. And now, 3,500 years after its writing, we're still using this and quoting it in marriage ceremonies. And so it's cool and amazing that this, uh, this little passage has been so meaningful for 3,500 years that we're quoting this ancient uh, Jewish account of how God created the earth and brought marriage into existence. And the big question is, how can we experience the good life? And before answering that, we need to ask, well, what is the good life? What picture of the good life does this passage give us? And I'm going to get my handy whiteboard out. I've so been looking for an opportunity to use the whiteboard, and half the time when I want to use it, I forget. I have this weird obsession with whiteboards, but anyway, that's for another time. So, picture of the good life. Um, we'll just draw, let's just draw a circle, and we'll say this is, everything in here represents the good life. And so we're going to say three things about that. First, we learn that the good life means we are with God. The good life means we're with God. So we'll put that in our circle. With God. Humans are meant to live with God, and home is where our God is. God created this world to be his temple, to dwell in it with us in a close, personal way. And the good life means we are with God. Second, the good life means we are over creation. Over creation. God has made a delightfully good world for us to dwell in. And it's filled with potential. And then he commissions us, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. And this doesn't mean we just get to do whatever we want with it. Uh, and ruin it, and sometimes we think like, uh, it's, we, it's easy for us to think like uh, renters rather than owners. It's kind of like, when you rent a place, you're way less concerned with things getting broken, with what happens to the carpets, because you know I'm going to get out of here someday. And the other, and we're not owners, when you own a house, you're like, okay, I really need to take care of this thing, I really need to do, uh, that sounds exciting, but I really need to take care of this and take ownership of it. Um, but even more, we're not owners either. We don't own the earth. We're actually stewards of it. And so it, we're not renting it temporarily. But God says, hey, I'm the one that owns it. And if you want uh, me to be pleased with you, you should do what I say. And so we need to pay attention to what um, God wants from us. And so as God's ambassadors made in his image, we're supposed to take care of the earth like he would take care of the earth. He's the king. We're his representatives. Third, the good life means we are with each other. I'll put it up here. With each other. God declares that it's not good for man to be alone, and so he creates a wife for Adam. But 
we could expand the principle to say that it isn't good for anyone to be alone. It's not just like a principle we can apply to marriage because we were made for a relationship with other people. It's not good for us to be isolated and alone. We were never meant to go through life alone. And so we're supposed to be with other people. And so the good life means we're with God, we're over creation, we're with each other. And the big question is, how can we experience the good life? And so now I'm going to add another element. The way we experience the good life is under God. I'm making it purple because usually purple means royalty. So under God. We experience the good life when we're under God. And when we submit to him as our highest authority, when we surrender all life to him as our king, when we honor him as our heavenly father. And so I kind of think of this as like putting a crown in the middle. Uh, originally I was going to put a throne, but I was like, oh my gosh, if I put a crown, it looks like our logo. So boom, this might look familiar to you. Uh, so under God, we're submitting to him, surrendering to him as our king. And it's unless we make God the king of our lives, we cannot have the good life. And if you look at what, how it's described in chapter 2, like what's in the middle of the garden? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil that represents this choice. Will I submit to God's authority or will I not? At the middle of this whole life, you can have life with God, with each other, and over creation, enjoying all of it. Um, if at the, in the middle you say, I'm going to let him define what's good and evil. He's going to be my authority and I'm going to do what he says. And so we need to know that God is the authority on the good life. God is the authority on the good life. And he created us, and he knows what is best for us. And just like when you get on a plane, the pilot is the authority on flying, so you need to put yourself under them, because you have no idea how to fly. And so too, God is the authority on the good life. And so you need to put yourself under his authority, because we have no idea what is good for our lives apart from him. But the problem is, we believe the lie that the good life can be experienced apart from submission to God. We kind of look at this circle and it's like, well, yeah, I want to have a connection with God. Yeah, I want to have a good relationship with other people. Yeah, I want to have like meaning in my work and enjoy creation. But I don't want this part. I just want all those benefits of it. And even worse, we'll see in chapter 3, the lie we believe is that we actually need to get out from under God's authority to have the good life. That only if we disobey God, will experience the good life. That's the lie that the serpent gets Adam and his wife to obey. And most everyone believes, it's very rare that someone would say, yeah, I don't believe in any sort of God or higher power or spiritual entity. Most everyone believes that some sort of God exists and they want to be connected with him. And many people want to have meaning and purpose in their work and what they do. They want to enjoy what they do. So that's how we're subduing and having dominion over creation. And most people want meaning in that. Everyone wants to have meaningful relationships where they can just be themselves, be open without shame. The problem is we want all of this without God. We want to do it on our own terms. We want the good life without the king of the good life. And you think about lots of businesses have signs on the door, no shirt, new shirt, shoes, no service, which I'm like, man, was there some sort of weird movement in the United States where people were just bumming around all the time? I must not know the history there, but no shirt, no shoes, no service. And so what happens if you try to walk in with no shirt, no shoes? You're not going to get any service, right? You're not going to be allowed in that place. You don't get to enjoy whatever this business has to offer you. And so imagine, like, God has put, like, here's the good life, and God has put this sign, and it's like, no surrender, no good life. And so if we don't want to surrender, what does that mean? 
no good life. No shirt, no shoes, no service, no surrender, no good life. And we want everything in the circle without surrendering to the king at the center. We want the goodness of the kingdom, but not the king of the kingdom. But we cannot have the good life without being under God, without surrendering to his authority. And so three ways, what happens when we aren't under God? If we aren't under God, we'll be against each other instead of with each other. So instead of with each other, we're against each other if we aren't under God. Because we're going to feel shame and we're going to hide from each other. We'll see other people as our competition rather than God's good gifts to cure us of our loneliness. We'll use people to validate ourselves through affirmation and appreciation and praise of us. And it's only under God will our relationships with other people be right. And secondly, if we're under God, we'll be under creation. Instead of over creation, we'll be under creation. And this means that we worship the creation rather than the creator. Instead of God on the throne defining good and evil, we're going to let creation define good and evil. We'll let ourselves define good and evil. In the next chapter, we'll see that the serpent defines good and evil for them. And we're going to worship. Uh, work is supposed to be something God gives us that we're doing in obedience to him. But if we put, put ourselves under creation, now work becomes our God. And we'll start working at expense of our families and at expense of rest. Or we'll worship sex and we'll get get try to get it in through inappropriate means and saying like you know this is this part of creation that is just so great i'm putting that on the throne i'm going to do define good and evil according to what it says which says i need to just get it in any way that i can we'll worship other people and we'll seek to please them more than we seek to please god and that's all putting ourselves under creation instead of over it and only under god will our relationship with creation be right Lastly, if we aren't under God, we will be without God instead of with God. We'll be without God instead of with God. We'll be separated from him and the life he gives. We're exiled from the garden home, as his presence, alienated and estranged from him. It's only under God our, will our relationship with God be right. Because he was meant to define what is good and evil. And that means we need to obey him. We can't have the good life if we're not willing to surrender our lives to God. And so we, we kind of want to, you know, let me just take all those things, or I want to come in there without going under his authority. It's like, that's not how it works. And so a couple, here's a question you can think about for this week, um, and then we'll give you a couple prayer ideas. What's an area of your life that you would describe as not good? What's an area of your life that you would describe as not good? God says, all this is good, very good. And then he says, well, it's not good for man to be alone. And then he fixes that problem. And so if there's an area of our life um, that's leading to a result that's not good, it probably means we're not surrendering to God. And so here's the three areas we just covered. Um, relationships with others. Is it a relationship with another person? Is it your spouse or your parent or your kid or a friend or a coworker? Is there a relationship in your life that is not good and needs fixing? And if so, put yourself under God and ask him this week, what do you want me to do? That's what it means to submit to God as the one who defines good and evil, right and wrong. Submit to him and say, what do you want me to do about this relationship, God? How do you want me to act in it? Secondly, is there, is there a relationship with creation not good? Do you say yes to work too much and yes to your family too little? Do you let your work define your life? Or, or do you hate work and see it as a curse and you need to find your God-given purpose in it? Once again, 
So put yourself under God and ask him this week, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do about this relationship with creation? I'm supposed to be over it, finding my purpose from you, telling me that this is what I'm called to do. I'm made in your image to represent you, be your ambassador, um, and I'm not doing it. So ask him, what do you want me to do? Or lastly, is it your relationship with God that is not good? You give him your leftovers. You squeeze him into your schedule instead of letting him define your schedule. So put yourself under God and ask him this week, what do you want me to do? My relationship with you is not what it's supposed to be. What do you want me to do? As we close, all of this, there's so much that points forward to Jesus. We read in John 1 last week that Jesus, actually read the beginning of John 1, but if we went later on there, it says Jesus came and dwelt among us. We've been saying God's desire is to dwell with humanity, but we got separated from him because we chose to define good and evil on our own terms, to just say, like, I'm going to be the authority, I'm going to do what I want. So Jesus came to dwell among us, because things have gotten ruined since Genesis 2. And then Jesus always submitted, he was always under God, and then he had right relationships with other people, he had right relationships with creation, he always had this sense of God's presence with him, and guiding him. But then, what does he do? God said, if you define good and evil on your own terms, what's going to happen? You will surely die. What did Jesus do? He always lived under God, and yet he died the death that we deserve for defining good and evil on our, our, term, on our own terms. For saying, you know what, God, I'm not going to submit to you. I'm going to go my own way. And Jesus was always inviting people, like, come, the kingdom of God is here. Come and enjoy it. And he was saying, like, come home. Come back to God's kingdom. Come back to submitting to God as your king, as the one who defines good and evil for you. And the place, that's why we have our our mission statement, surrendering all of life to Jesus and inviting others to do the same. Because inviting people, come back home. Come experience the good life. And we have to define good life according to the Bible. Um, We can't just say, like, oh, yeah, the good life is, you know, I just kind of get everything I want. I have all the money I want. That's not the Bible defines it, but it's right relationships with God, with each other, and with creation. Um, and so the place where um, God is building his temple now, it's not a, a physical place, but it's with a people. God says once Jesus brings us um, out of slavery, to sin, and death, now his presence comes and dwells with us. And so we're thinking, if you're thinking like, man, following Jesus does not feel like a return to the good life, because a lot of stuff is hard. Um, But the fact is, rehab takes time. Like, we're broken, and there's broken things about us. And getting rehab takes time. If somebody breaks their leg, it takes a long time before they're able to put full weight on that. So we're going through this rehab. But we have this, um, in our church DNA, I I can think of it as like like this crock pot of ingredients. We call it the community practices, believing the gospel, living as family. Loving his servants, going as messengers, relying on the Spirit. That's kind of like the ingredients we put in the crock pot. And that's stewing around, helping us to surrender our life um, to Jesus. And so we can be living this good life together and be a picture of, you know what, man, that's what we're all looking for. And that was what Genesis 2 was talking about. Because we're supposed to be this light to other people and inviting them into how God originally intended us to live. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this. Um, powerful picture, Genesis 2, that you give us of what it means uh, to have you as king and what we can enjoy because of that. Will you help us increase our trust 
now of you that you are the best one to define good and define evil and that we should follow those definitions and not try to define them for ourselves. Would you grow us in our trust and our obedience? Would you let us be a picture uh, and a light to the rest of the world of what it looks like to be at home with you? In your son's name we pray. Amen.